Neural Pathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, psychiatry, neurosurgery, and neurorehab. As reports of COVID-19 case theories from China and elsewhere start to accumulate, we're getting a clearer picture of how infection with a virus known as SARS-CoV-2 can cause emerging neurological features. In today's episode of Neuropathways, we're discussing the neurological manifestations of COVID-19 infection. I'm your host, Alex Ray Grant, neurologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. I'm very pleased to have Dr. Jeffrey Cohen join us for today's conversation. Dr. Cohen is the director of the Experimental Therapeutics Program in Cleveland Clinic's Mellon Center for Multiple Sclerosis Treatment and Research. He is also professor of neurology in Cleveland Clinic's Lerner College of Medicine. Jeff, welcome to Neuropathways. Thank you for inviting me, Alex. So, Jeff, we're beginning to see more and more data published on neurological manifestations of COVID-19 infection. Can you tell us a bit about neurological manifestations and what's being seen in patients diagnosed with this disease? Well, the the COVID-19 pandemic has uh, disrupted all aspects of, of life, including uh, effects on, on health care and uh, health. Uh, and it's turning out to be a, quite a complicated uh, infection. So uh, the neurologic uh, complications are increasingly being uh, recognized. One aspect of neurologic involvement uh, is a consequence of the uh, uh, severe hypoxemic uh, respiratory failure, uh, sometimes accompanied by uh, cardiotoxicity, uh, liver failure, renal failure. So it's a uh, a metabolic encephalopathy uh, associated with uh, a critical illness. One of the things we've learned is is that uh, among the risk factors uh, for severe uh, COVID-19 infection are uh, comorbidities, including cardiovascular risk factors. So we've also seen uh, stroke uh, in association with uh, uh, COVID-19 uh, infection. Uh, but beyond that, uh, there are several uh, very interesting secondary complications of the infection. Uh, so one is a uh, kind release inflammatory uh, syndrome uh, that frequently develops uh, several weeks into the illness uh, with very high circulating levels of a variety of inflammatory cytokines, including uh, interleukin-6, uh, tumor necrosis factor alpha, uh, interferon gamma, plus uh, a number of other ones. Uh, and so there may be some neurologic uh, consequences of that. Uh, there also may be virus infection of the endothelial cells, the cells that line uh, the blood vessels, uh, leading to a thrombotic uh, condition, uh, which can cause uh, stroke. And, and we, we've seen stroke in young, young people with COVID-19 uh, infection, as, including as the uh, presenting uh, manifestation. Uh, and then finally, there may be what looks like a vasculitis, a, a Kawasaki disease-like illness, particularly uh, in young children. So it sounds like, Jeff, there's a number of different mechanisms of neurological injury that occur. I had heard there were a number of reported cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome and then a recent encephalitis picture. So it, it seems like it's diversifying a bit, isn't it? Right. So uh, as we're, we're becoming better at diagnosing uh, COVID-19, uh, we're also recognizing some other uh, neurologic manifestations, which previously were thought to be rare, but uh, 
now appear to be somewhat more common than we realized. Uh, some of those are immune-mediated, as you mentioned, uh, so illnesses that look like uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome or uh, other acute uh, CNS inflammatory demyelinating conditions. Uh, but there also may be, in some patients, a direct viral infection of the central nervous system. And there, there have been emerging cases of a meningoencephalitis-like illness in some people, uh, and also perhaps infection of neurons in certain key areas of the brain, uh, for example, those involved with uh, cardiopulmonary regulation, which may also contribute to the, the respiratory failure. Other symptoms uh, which are of interest uh, include agusia, loss of taste, and anosmia, loss of smell. These symptoms are of interest uh, because, first of all, they're unusual, and secondly, because they can occur acutely uh, with only mild other symptoms or, in some cases, preceding uh, other uh, symptoms. Uh, in some patients, they may be due to inflammation of the uh, nasopharynx, uh, but in other cases, it's been hypothesized that they result from direct viral infection of olfactory bulb neurons uh, or uh, other neurons within the central nervous system involved in taste and smell. So it's, a, it's an infection that causes a myriad of, of manifestations through a variety of, of mechanisms. Yeah, it does seem that um, it's spreading to different neurological systems as we speak. Uh, maybe, Jeff, if we go back to stroke, you know, it seems to be a major complication, as you mentioned, vascular risk factors and possibly related to other mechanisms. This seems to be affecting younger people as well as older people. Is there anything else we need to say about stroke in this condition? So uh, stroke uh, is turning out to be uh, uh, an important neurologic manifestation of, of COVID-19, and there's probably uh, two scenarios. One is uh, the older patient with uh, cardiovascular uh, comor comorbidities uh, who may uh, develop a stroke in association with uh, critical COVID-19 infection. Uh, the other setting that we're recognizing increasingly is stroke in young people. Uh, and that may be due to either the hypercoagulable state uh, that the virus infection may induce, or it may be due to a, a vasculitis-like uh, illness. So if uh, one encounters uh, uh, stroke in a young person, COVID-19 uh, is an important consideration. So let's let's shift the discussion a bit. So you know, many of us manage patients with various neurological disorders. Some people on immunological medications. So you know, the protocols seem to be changing daily, and a number of societies have put out some guidance. But what steps is the Cleveland Clinic and the Mellon Center? What steps are we taking uh, to provide safe patient care in this time? Well, so there's been a lot of concern in the the MS field, my area of expertise. Uh, about whether uh, multiple sclerosis might uh, increase uh, the susceptibility uh, to infection uh, or the severity uh, of the infection, uh, including as a, a consequence of the disease-modifying therapies uh, that we use to treat MS, all of which are immunomodulatory in, in some way. Thankfully, the current indications are that uh, people with multiple sclerosis are not more susceptible to the infection or at risk for uh, uh, more severe infection, and that the disease-modifying therapies also don't 
uh, increase the susceptibility of or, or severity of, of the infection. There are a number of other considerations, however. Um, uh, some of the uh, disease-modifying therapies are relatively long-acting. So in some uh, patients, particularly if they're not already on disease-modifying therapy, it may be prudent to uh, weigh the, the benefits and the risk, uh, anticipating that we might learn more about the infection. Uh, the second consideration is that uh, some of our more potent therapies are administered by intravenous infusion, which uh, does increase the risk of exposure to infection uh, as uh, patients go to an infusion center. Uh, and then finally, something that we're becoming increasingly uh, concerned with is whether the disease-modifying therapies might uh, interfere with the ability of someone to mount a response to vaccination uh, when those become available. So it's, it's still a complicated situation, but at present, uh, we've not made major changes in how we're uh, treating multiple sclerosis as a result of, of COVID-19. The other uh, issues that are important to uh, advise one's patients about are uh, that uh, uh, even as uh, we're starting to open up uh, and people are uh, going out in public more, it's important for people with chronic illnesses such as multiple sclerosis to practice good infection prevention measures. Uh, including limiting contacts uh, with people that may be infected, uh, practice uh, hand washing, uh, have people wear masks to protect each other. Uh, and the other final aspect is, is that people with MS, like other chronic illnesses, need not to uh, neglect uh, the care for their multiple sclerosis. So one of our concerns is that people may be uh, foregoing testing or foregoing treatment for fear of, of infection. And it's important to advise patients not to do that. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. I actually want to reconfirm that. I just Zoom meeting to patients uh, a couple days ago who had stopped uh, her MS medication and just had a relapse of optic neuritis off medicine. And, and certainly a concern as people are stopping, stopping their medicine they need for their disease. So, you know, it's a, it's a pretty crazy time in healthcare and in society in general. And we've had to change how we communicate with our patients. Can you uh, give the audience a sense of how the Mellon team is communicating with patients during the pandemic and how that's working out? Well, so we had, even before the pandemic, we had already uh, been developing a, a distance health uh, capability. We see a lot of patients, uh, some of whom are, travel a long distance. Uh, and we wanted to be able to maintain contact with them, uh, and it may be difficult for them to travel. So we had already been developing the capability to interact with patients uh, at a distance. Uh, and then with the pandemic uh, and uh, with our center, like many other centers, uh, closing down our in-person visits, uh, we very rapidly shifted to uh, virtual visits. Uh, and that's actually gone uh, quite well. Patients uh, like it. It uh, it allows us to uh, interact with them, at least on the computer screen, face-to-face. -face. Uh, uh, it's better than a phone call. So I, I expect that even as we start to open up our, our clinical program, that we'll still maintain uh, a sizable proportion of visits that are done uh, virtually. Yeah, that was the next thing I was going to ask is how do you see things, you know, once, and we all hope it will, once the pandemic settles down, do you, do you see that? changing other things about what we do in medicine, you know, distance medicine approaches? Well, I think in, in some ways it may increase our ability to interact with patients. When we relied solely on on face-to-face uh, -face visits, 
we almost sought the the, uh, the smallest frequency possible. Whereas now, I expect that we'll uh, intersperse face to face visits with uh, virtual visits. It's not only uh, applicable to visits with physicians and advanced practice clinicians, but it, it also may be very helpful for things such as uh, social work, uh, health psychology, uh, and actually uh, physical speech, uh, occupational therapy. Uh, all of those can be done virtually. So I think in some ways, it uh, now that we've started thinking outside the box, uh, it may allow us to uh, administer some of those programs uh, for patients at distance. Well, it certainly has allowed us to think it through in a pretty rapid uh, way and change process pretty quickly. Jeff, let me uh, let me ask you. Uh, there's quite a bit going on in terms of research on uh, COVID nineteen infection at the Cleveland Clinic. Can you, as, as a leader in that research, can you uh, tell us some of the things that were uh, are going on in that area? Well, so we've been uh, you know, pursuing uh, several lines of research. One is uh, just to gather more data on uh, the manifestations of the infection uh, and what are the factors that uh, determine the risk of the infection and the severity of, of the infection. We have the advantage that we see and test quite a, a large number of, of people, so it's allowed us to identify some of those factors. And, and as I alluded to earlier, many of those are uh, older age, uh, overall uh, health, including the presence of comorbidities, some medications. Uh, but it turns out that uh, it's made us very aware of the uh, social determinants of health so that uh, people that have less access to, to health care don't have the luxury of, of staying home who must work and who work in jobs that require them to be exposed to other people uh, are at higher risk for the infection. So that's been one line of research. Uh, another line of research has been to test uh, potential therapies for the infection itself and for some of the complications uh, of the infection. Uh, and then finally, uh, more basic research to try to understand the, the mechanisms of, of the infection uh, and the mechanisms by which it causes uh, complications. Well, that's great. Um, so any other major closing remarks or takeaways? from our conversation you want the audience to hear? Well, so uh, I would say that like everybody, uh, uh, this has been a difficult uh, uh, time. Uh, and as I, I think I started by saying, uh, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has, has disrupted many aspects of, of, of life, including uh, healthcare. Uh, it's also uh, shown a, a light on some aspects of, of healthcare that we already knew were problematic, but it's it's really emphasized uh, some of those. So so hopefully we'll uh, uh, get through this pandemic and, and also learn from it. Yeah, it would be nice if we could take the best learnings from it and move forward in medicine. So, well, Jeff, I want to thank you for taking the time to discuss this area of medicine. It's certainly what we're all thinking about right now, and, and I'm glad to hear that we're doing our part. So thank you very much for helping us. Oh, thank you, Alex. This concludes this episode of Neuropathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast, or subscribe to the podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute 
on our Consult QD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org neuro, or follow us on Twitter at MD. all one word, that's at CLEClinicMD on Twitter. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.